So, um, uh, what is this? It is called, uh, Political Theory and, um, Other Stuff. Uh, this is Mike. Paul, you want to say hello? Hello. And today we are excited because we are starting our next larger text called The Racial Contract by Charles W. Mills. And it was published, I want to say, 1998, but I'm not, nope, 1997 by Cornell University. Yeah, so uh, Charles W. Mills is a uh, fucking philosopher from uh, Jamaica. Yeah, yeah, I was just going to say, uh, Mills is a very, very legit unbelievably well-educated man you said comes from jamaica the book that we're reading the racial contract when it was released won a gustavus myers outstanding book award uh, which is just annual award for the best scholarly publishing published wow. work yeah very well received book and feel like it's going to talk about some things that are obviously for an unknown reason to me controversial in modern day america for uh Anybody who might be listening, if this is controversial for it, just understand that the person writing this book is not like a Ben Shapiro, that sort of caliber. This is a bona fide academic with lots of credentials to his name. And I, I was reading about him today. It's crazy that his uh, his BS is in physics. And then he just like switched over to the humanities. I think that's cool. Yeah, I can confidently say this man is much, much more intelligent than myself. Yeah, well, just a genius. Yes. I'm going to read the intro, uh, or the, the first paragraph or two of the intro. We might not have a bunch to add for the intro, because like a proper introduction, he's just laying out his thesis, yeah. and it will be once we hit chapter one that we'll have maybe more input, maybe, not maybe, there will be a few, um, at times, confusion and, and snags along the way, but that's why we do this, yes. and that's okay. So I just want to read the quote that he has before the introduction. It says, um, when white people say justice, they mean just us. Black American folk aphorism. Introduction to the racial contract. White supremacy is the unnamed political system that has made the modern world what it is today. You will not find this term in introductory or even advanced texts in political theory. A standard undergraduate philosophy course will start off with Plato and Aristotle, perhaps, or perhaps say something about Augustine, Aquinas, and Machiavelli, uh, move on to Hobbes, Locke, Mill, and Marx, and then wind up with Rawls and Nozick. It will introduce you to notions of aristocracy, democracy, absolutism, liberalism, representative government, socialism, welfare capitalism, and libertarianism. But though it covers more than 2,000 years of Western political thought and runs the ostensible gamut of political systems, there will be no mention of, of the basic political system that has shaped the world for the past several hundred years. And this omission is not accidental. Rather, it reflects the fact that standard textbooks and courses have for the most part been written and designed by whites, who take their racial privilege so much for granted 
that they do not even see it as political, as a form of domination. Ironically, the most important political system of recent global history, the system of domination by which white people have historically ruled over and in certain important ways continued to rule over non-white people, is not seen as a political system at all. It is just taken for granted. It is the background against which other systems, which we are to see as political, are highlighted. This book is an attempt to redirect your vision, to make you see what, in a sense, has, always, has been there all along. Philosophy uh, remained remarkably untouched by debates over multiculturalism, canon reform, and ethnic diversity racking the academy. Both demographically and conceptually, it is one of the whitest of the humanities. Blacks, for example, constitute only 1% of philosophers in North, America, North American universities, a hundred or so people out of more than 10,000. And there are even fewer Latino, Asian American, and Native American philosophers. Surely, this underrepresentation itself stands in need of an explanation. And, in my opinion, it can be traced in part to a conceptual array and a standard repertoire of concerns whose abstract abstractness typically elides rather than includes the experience of racial minorities. Since white, in parentheses, women have the demographic advantage of numbers, there are, of course, far more female philosophers in the profession than non-white philosophers though still not proportionate to women's percentage of the population. And they have made far greater progress in developing alternative conceptualizations. Those African-American philosophers who do work in moral and political theory tend either to produce general work indistinguishable from that of their white peers or to focus on local issues affirmative action, and the black underclass. Or historical figures W.E.D. Du Bois, Alan Locke, in a way that does not aggressively engage the broader debate. Do you, uh, do you want to, uh, do you want to take a little bit? Um, yeah, it's, even just like this opening bit is, it's so frustrating because from any way you look at it everything he said is very obvious if you pay any attention to history or anything like that um the problem is is that like if you don't pay attention to those things because it's such a way of life these days that trying to convince somebody of its existence is so fucking frustrating like it is so fucking frustrating like i am a white person and i can confidently say that I have a, a large advantage in a lot of situations. And nobody is saying that, like, if you're white, everything's going to be easy for you and handed to you and you'll never have to work or do anything ever again. That's not the preposition at all. It's There's a lot of points of life that I don't have to worry, and it's because I'm white. If, like, everything I'm about to say has been said a million times recently, but if I get pulled over 
99% of the time, I get away with it, and the cop is, like, laughing and joking with me by the end. There were multiple times in college where we got busted at parties doing crazy shit, and they didn't care because we were a group of white kids. Due to where we live, I know they came to our house because they thought we were going to be ethnic minorities. Just where our college house was located, you know, that's why cops came in the force that they did. But when they would come, they wouldn't do anything. Why? Because we were white. I very, very much understand that my appearance uh, has aided me in jobs and job promotions. I fit the part of what a lot of companies want to look like in certain, you know, like executive style roles. Like I'm a tall white dude. They just want tall white dudes. Like it's... And I uh, can tell you, I am vastly overrepresented (laughs) in the business world as well. Like the company I worked for is in the South, in North Carolina. North Carolina has a very, not very large, but has a a decent sized uh, black population. Colorado, I can't necessarily say the exact same for. But in my corporate office, when I first started, there was one black guy that worked there. But like three months in, he was gone. And then the entire office uh, was white people go down to store level the entire thing fucking changes just fits into an overall narrative that exists and has existed for a long time of what western society views should be in charge of shit you know a more subtle degree that shit exists totally i've never had anybody be nervous that i was walking by them on a sidewalk i've never been targeted to just have people say random racist shit to me that shit just doesn't happen to me. I don't have to deal with it in my life. In a given situation, I can stand my ground more because I don't have to be worried about cops showing up. You know, I understand if I was my height and size and black that I would have to just have a much more subservient, modest appearance all the time just to avoid dealing with a fucking shit show that could possibly arise from me speaking at like a higher than normal volume or some shit. That is a real fear and I have seen that shit happen in person and it's fucking terrify uh the only other thing i want to say and sorry we're gonna just extend this intro out four episodes is that he they were he was talking about percentage of philosophers and he brings up women and stuff but women have only been represented very recently the first and i this is i don't have a great knowledge in this field so i'm not saying that this is the de facto truth but the first like notable female philosopher i know about is simone de Beauvoir, and she had to be like unbelievably good to be noted so yeah i mean like maybe now there's more of a representation but historically jesus it was just white people or white males to an extreme extent for sure for sure okay i guess i'll keep going sorry about that tangent uh, uh no 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 uh, it's all on point. what is needed is a global theoretical framework for situating discussions of race and white racism and thereby challenging the assumptions of white political philosophy which would correspond to feminist theories articulation of the centrality of gender, patriarchy, and sexism to to traditional moral and political theory. What is needed, in other words, is a recognition that racism, or, as I will argue, global white supremacy, is itself a political system, a particular power structure of formal or informal rule, socioeconomic privilege, and norms for the differential distribution of material wealth and opportunities, Benefits and burdens, rights and duties. The notion of the racial contract is, I suggest, one possible way of making this connection with mainstream theory, since it uses the vocabulary and apparatus already developed for contract contractor. All right, uh, I'm gonna try this one more time. Contractarianism, contractarianism. I think uh, <laughs> to map this unacknowledged system. 
Contract talk is, after all, the political lingua franca of our times. We all understand the idea of a contract, an agreement between two or more people to do something. The social contract just extends this idea. If we think of human beings as starting off in a state of nature, it suggests that they then decide to establish civil society and a government. What we have then is a theory that founds government on the popular consent of individuals taken as equals. The hard part is that I feel these days people don't even understand that the government and society was like, we decided to do this. Do you know what I'm saying? Like they all, I see so many things where people feel that they owe nothing to society, if that makes sense. That like, I benefit, I don't benefit from society. It owes me, you know, I owe it nothing. It owes me nothing. And it's just, it's just crazy that, you know, 20, 30 years later, maybe people understand this even less than when this book was published. Um, like the hatred for government has just gotten so obscene. Yeah. And so I would say, um, you know, and I, I, you know, it's a whole thing we can talk about. And I'm sure that yes. you will have other opportunities yes. through the text to be able to talk about it. But I will say just briefly that I don't think it's crazy at all. I think it shows how neoliberalism has been able to uh, systematically, you know, show tell people indoctrinate people with radical yeah, uh, individualism to the detriment of right. society and we see that today the fucking july 17th of 2020 in manifesting itself in the form of refusal to wear masks you know? and because and it's hard to tell what people think and what they say um i don't know if the two actually mesh in their reality but i have seen and heard so many people talk about like a constitutional rights, which is just then you shouldn't allow anything to tell you you shouldn't allow anybody to tell you anything then following any rules in that frame of reference is breaking a constitutional right. And that's so not the basis of any right wing beliefs that I'm aware of. And then two, it's that thing that like the government is literally trying to kill you with masks, masks, make it worse, masks, CO2 poisoning, blah, blah, blah. And it's just, A, uh, a disregard for all of the professions that wear masks constantly. Uh, you don't hear that frame of thought come from those people. And two, the rest of the world that the virus isn't fucked in followed those protocols. So I can understand, not understand, but be more along with the thought if this was only happening in America and didn't happen anywhere else. And there were no other realistic frames of reference to use. But that's not the case. Like, we've watched the countries that did masks and followed social distance protocols because they cared about each other. And those countries are open now, and it's not a fucking issue, which is the goal that everybody wants. But for some reason, there's a percentage of the population that thinks the government is trying to poison them. Yeah, literally anyone, everyone. Uh, I guess I'll read this little tiny one, and then you can take it. Okay. But the peculiar contract to which I'm referring, though based on the social contract to tradition that has been central to Western political theory, is not a contract between everybody, we the people, but between just the people who count, the people who really are people, we the white people. So it is a racial contract. The social contract, whether in its original or in its contemporary version, constitutes a powerful set of lenses for looking at society and the government. But in its obfuscation of the ugly realities of group power and domination, it is, 
if unsupplemented, a profoundly misleading account of the way the modern world actually is and came to be. The racial contract, as a theory, I use quotation marks to indicate when I am talking about the theory of the racial contract as against the racial contract itself, will explain that the racial contract is real and that apparent racist violations of the terms of the social contract in fact uphold the terms of the racial contract. And that's, in my opinion, that's really important. And he does a great job hammering it home. But so often, and I think he even says this later, but so often we make it seem like the racism was um, the exception to the rule, whereas he he shows that it was actually the rule. It wasn't the exception. So the racial contract then is intended as a conceptual bridge between two areas now largely segregated from each other. On the one hand, the world of mainstream, i.e. white, ethics and political philosophy, preoccupied with discussions of justice and rights in the abstract. On the other hand, the world of the Native American, African American, and third and fourth world, political thought, historically focused on issues of conquest, imperialism, colonialism, white settlement, land rights, race and racism, slavery, Jim Crow, reparations, apartheid, cultural, cultural authenticity, national identity, indig- indigismo? Indigenismo. In, in, it's obviously indig- using, like, I think it's, yeah. Indigenous and like, um, whatever the easement uh, is, like machismo, things like that. Uh, yeah. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then Afrocentricism, etc. These issues hardly appear in mainstream political philosophy, but they have been central to the political struggles of the majority of the world's population. Their absence from what is considered serious philosophy is a reflection not of their lack of seriousness, but of the color of the vast majority of Western academic philosophers, and perhaps their lack of seriousness. Yeah, and the only thing I kind of want to talk about, and I'm sure this will be covered, is that there wasn't a lack of ethnic philosophers because they weren't intelligent enough or interested in this they literally were killed or forced to be illiterate to not have these sorts of discussions who knows like how many great thinkers i mean it's uncountable i'm sure we lost to them having to practice in secret or to being murdered at a young age because somebody saw that they were able to you know even with no access to education were able to kind of push this sort of stuff it's not like everybody didn't want to be philosophers or that only white people were capable of it it's that white people did everything within their power to make sure they were the only philosophers they were the only political voice unbelievably tragic truly just fucking the world would probably be uh uh, and obviously this is all theoretical and anecdotal but i would have to imagine that the world would just be a much better place uh if if voices of oppression were heard uh, our voices of the oppressed have been heard more uh, throughout history. Yep. 
Yeah, absolutely. The great virtue of traditional social contract theory was that it provided seemingly straightforward answers both to factual questions about the origins and workings of society and government and to normative questions about the justification of socioeconomic structures and political institutions. Moreover, the contract, in quotes, was very versatile depending on how different theorists viewed the state of nature. Human motivation, the rights and liberties people gave up or retained, the particular details of the agreement, and the resulting character of the government. In the modern Rawlsian version of the contract, this flexibility continues to be illustrated. Since Rawls dispenses with the historical claims of classic contractarianism and focuses instead on justification of basic structure of society from its 1650 to 1800 heyday as a grand quasi-anthropological account of the origins and development of society and the state the contract has now become just a normative tool a conceptual device to elicit our intuitions about justice. But my usage is different. The racial contract I employ is, in a sense, more in keeping with the spirit of the classic contractarians, Hobbes, Locke, Rousseau, and Kant. I use it not merely normatively to generate judgments about social justice and injustice, but descriptively to explain the actual genesis of the society and the state the way society is structured the way the government functions and people's moral psychology the most famous case in which the contract is used to explain a manifestly non-ideal society what would be termed in current philosophical jargon a naturalized account is Rousseau's Discourse on Inequality, 1755. Rousseau argues that technological development in the state of nature brings into existence a nascent society of growing divisions in wealth between rich and poor, which are then consolidated and made permanent by a deceitful social contract, in quotations. Whereas the ideal contract explains how a just society would be formed, ruled by a moral government and regulated by a defensible moral code. This non-ideal slash naturalized contract explains how an unjust exploitative society ruled by an oppressive government and regulated by an immoral code comes into existence. If the ideal contract is to be endorsed and emulated, this non-ideal, naturalized contract is to be demystified and condemned. So the point of analyzing the non-ideal contract is not to ratify it, but to use it to explain and expose the inequalities of the actual non-ideal polity and to help us see through the theories and moral justification offered in defense of them. It gives us a kind of x-ray vision into the real 
internal logic of the socio-political system. Thus, it does normative work for us not through its own values, which are detestable, but by enabling us to understand the polity's actual history and how these values and concepts have functioned to rationalize oppression so as to reform them. That is super important, and that's, and I'll probably say this 50 times while we're reading this. There's a lot of people that feel like if you're criticizing something, that means that, that you hate or, or, or want to destroy everything, both good and bad. And I always use the, um, like the example or the metaphor of someone that is, um, that has a leaky roof and tells their friend, Hey, my roof is leaking. I'm thinking about replacing my roof. No one would say to that person, you hate your house. You hate your home. You're a bad person because you hate that building, right? We, you would, you would maybe not say, but you would think, Oh, this person cares about the value of their house. They care about its structural integrity. They care about taking care of their family who live in the home. And that is precisely what is being done when you're when you're critiquing society or, or the state it, it, when you're doing it at its best and even to expand on that like sometimes it is okay to completely leave things behind but still understand and appreciate the value added when they were there um, like to follow the same analogy like say you have a family and you have to move out of your one or two bedroom house that you initially bought you could have had great times in that house it could have been the house for you at the time that you had that house so when you move on to it because you've evolved and have different needs and understand your needs better, that doesn't mean you hated your old house. It just means it wasn't appropriate for what you needed to do then. So you can leave these full, you know, you can leave it full force behind, which this is once again based in like Dunning-Kruger territory with how little I know about philosophy. But um, there are definitely philosophers that I gave credence to when I was younger that the older I get, I'm just like, man, dude, some of your ideas were so bad that I just don't care about the rest of them. And that's maybe a short sight, like being short sighted on my part. But there are some people who I just innately disagree with their basic philosophy. You know, I understand where their thought process and how it led. I don't know the extent of his works, but sometimes I don't love her. So, <laughs> uh, okay. well. Um, yeah, well, and then, and then also, though, um, like you were saying, looking at their work still has utility mm -hmm. because you can see maybe why they thought what they thought. And then also you have something to compare. Um, it's like, OK, if we don't like this, what would we like? Would we right. like the opposite of it? You know, yep. And I, so I think that that is valuable. And I, I have to admit, I get caught up in the ties of what was justified based on these philosophers and what they actually intended. I think very... This is going to go into a huge tangent, but God, I'm going to, people are going to hate me. I am pretty much into canceling the founding fathers. You know, I, do, I would not have any anger or hatred if their statues were no longer put up in places. If I ever mention that online, people jump down my throats and they're like, oh, they created everything you view as this or that. And that's, you know, you wouldn't be free if it wasn't for them. And my immediate thought is just like, yeah, that probably was the intention of a lot of the Enlightenment philosophers that they took their ideas from. Like these people didn't create these ideas. They were uh, created by people with huge bodies of work, decades, sometimes centuries before they put it in. Uh, and if anything, I think the founding fathers bastardized all of it. They took, uh, like this was mentioning, they took the parts of it that they wanted for them 
and it meant that they guarantees those rights for themselves but fuck you to everybody like the america that the parts of america that is great today almost none of that came from founding fathers times like in founding fathers i wouldn't be able to vote i never would have been able to vote my mother wouldn't have been able to have the career she could have uh slaves were not only present and i am not positive when the three-fifths clause came around but i do think it was during founding father's time you know to have all of that talk about liberty and shit and then not only have an enslaved population but to not only take away their voice but give that voice to their slave owners is just fucking disgusting uh as far as like with the three-fifths clause like you know, you don't count as anything but extra numbers for congressional representation to help your slave owners get a bigger voice about what they want to see. Uh, and it's that sort of shit that it's like, yeah, I, I don't think any of that is awesome nowadays. And I don't think, like, yes, their statues should be in museums. Um, but most people prior to Lincoln, it's like, I don't think they need to be publicly celebrated, especially since we've reached the point where most of the ways that they govern their lives are morally reprehensible. Um, do we need to know about them? Yes. But do they need to be adulated and uh still look to for american virtue no i I sure as fuck don't think so yeah that's the distinction i I always make between with the whole tearing down their statues it's just like i haven't i can't remember a time in my life where i learned something because of a statue oh fuck the well well okay i'll take that back what i learned from statues is who we kind of uh mythologize okay Oh, that's a good call. Who becomes like like greater than yeah. a human, right? But other than that, it's not like I know about Columbus because of Columbus statues. I know about Columbus because of school, and then I see Columbus's statues around, which tells me, okay, this is like larger yeah. than life. And so I totally agree with you. It's not like if we remove every statue of George Washington, no one will ever learn about George Washington yeah. I mean, again, we've got right? some states named after him. Well... DC is in the state, but yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just ridiculous. So, so I think that, um, yeah, I totally agree with you that, especially when we have statues of mere mor- mortals that were racist, that were rapists, that were fucking slavers, and then we also make statues of mythical yeah. um, people, yeah. like um, you know, the Statue of Justice, and it's like it would. I think that statues should be based on ideals like the statue of of justice or liberty or whatever rather than on humans who are all flawed and and as culture and society changes what was once viewed not as a flaw becomes a flaw whereas ideals can remain pure pure. and it's just ironic because the people in my anecdotal experience that are defending these statues generally tend to be of the christian faith and idols is like one of the commandments you know let's wrap up this uh intro uh by the way this intro packs more info than certain books i have read which is <laughs> right i know I uh, carol pateman's provocative feminist work of a decade ago the sexual contract is a good example of this approach and the inspiration for my own book though my use is somewhat different which demonstrates how much descriptive explanatory life there still is in the contract Payman uses it naturalistically, as a way of modeling the internal dynamic of the non-ideal, male-dominated societies that actually exist today. So this is, as indicated, a reversion to the original anthropological approach, uh, anthropological in quotes, approach in which the contract is intended to be historically explanatory. But the twist is, of course, that her purpose is now subversive. 
to excavate the hidden, unjust male covenant upon which the ostensibly gender-neutral social contract actually rests. By looking at Western society and its prevailing political and moral ideologies as if they were based on an unacknowledged sexual contract, Pateman offers a conjectural history that reveals uh, and exposes the normative logic that makes sense of the inconsistencies, circumlocutions, and evasions of the classic contract theorists, and correspondingly, the world of patriarchal domination their work has helped to rationalize. Yeah. Hold on, hold on. What is um, circumlocutions or whatever? Uh, Circumlocutions? Yeah. I was just happy I was able to borderline say it. (laughs) The use of many words where fewer would do. Okay. So, Jordan Peterson uh, is a big fan of circumlocuting, if you will. Um, Okay. So, so can you explain it, like, how it works in that context, then? Yeah. He's just saying that... um, uh, that the that the people or that she's exposing that the uh, the contract that uh, of the political prevailing political and moral I- ideologies used. I think she's just yeah. I think he's saying evasion yeah and uh, circumlocution and inconsistencies to like um, prop up their uh, their domination yeah, and or I think, whatever. Yeah, that, that, yes, right? for sure. Like her her work pointed out like hey a lot of your guys' shit is not built on a real foundation it's built on being vague enough that people can't spot your shit which i think okay. is unbelievably relevant still today if not more so the amount of interactions i have online that where people are so much more focused on esoteric or just like ridiculous things uh, and that their logic, like, I'll get, like, paragraphs and paragraphs posted to me that are basically saying one tiny thing. And they set it up that way so that you have potentially paragraphs to dispute when really you're just talking about one fucking thing. And they're hiding that thing. Yeah. Um, so, okay. My aim here is to adopt a non-ideal contract as a rhetorical trope and theoretical method for understanding the inner logic of racial domination and how it structures the polities of the West and elsewhere. The ideal social contract has been a central concept of Western political theory for understanding and evaluating the social world, and concepts are crucial to cognition. Cognitive scientists point out that they help us to categorize, learn, remember, infer, explain, problem-solve, generalize, and analogize. Correspondingly, the lack of appropriate concepts can hinder learning, interfere with memory, block interferences, obstruct explanation, and perpetuate problems. I am suggesting, then, that as a central concept, the notion of a racial contract might be more revealing of the real character of the world we are living in and the corresponding historical deficiencies of its normative theories and practices than the raceless notions currently dominant in political theory. Uh, both at the primary level of an alternative conceptualization of the facts and at the secondary reflexive level of critical analysis that the, of the orthodox theories themselves, the racial contract enables us to engage with mainstream Western political theory to bring in race, insofar as contractarianism is thought of as a useful way to do political philosophy, to theorize about how the polity was created and what values should guide our prescriptions for making it more just. 
It is obviously crucial to understand what the original and continuing contract actually was and is so that we can correct for it in constructing the ideal contract. The racial contract should therefore be enthusiastically welcomed by white contract theorists as well. So this book can be thought of as resting on three simple claims. The existential claim, white supremacy, both local and global, exists and has existed for many years. The conceptual claim, white supremacy should be thought of itself as itself a political system. The methodological claim, as a political system, white supremacy can illuminatingly be theorized as based on a contract between whites, a racial contract. Here, then, are ten theses on the racial contract divided into three chapters. Boom. Dude, what a fucking no, intro, it's... dude. Oh my god. <sighs> oh my god, I love that yeah. shit, dude. And it just, like, it it hits so much stuff home, and, you know, I mean, like, even just thinking this, it hit home more for me that, like, yes, every fucking, maybe not every, but the huge majority of laws, decision, everything, was only decided by white dudes talking to white dudes. Like, it just... It still is very much the case these days. Obviously, there are legislative people in legislature and things of that nature that do represent. But goddamn, is it such a small... And I think he'll cover it in this book. But if not, Ibram X. Kendi in his book, Stamped from the Beginning, A Comprehensive History of Racist Ideas, talks about how what Mills would call um, the racial contract is colorblind, meaning that black people can embrace this ideology as well as white people and not even yeah. realize oh. it. My point is, my point is, is that it doesn't matter if, you know, like conservatives a lot of time will be like, oh, well, you know, look, you've got uh, a black mayor and a black, you know, head of the police, police chief, you got a black sheriff. And it's like, yeah, but um, those individuals could very easily and oftentimes do, whether consciously or not, subscribe to racist ideas yeah. that perpetuate and this even if they racism. don't and they're radical in everything that they do they still are working within a system completely created by white supremacy so there are built-in uh what is that called safe there's like built-in stop safety gaps catches yes yeah, stop gaps where yeah where shit just can't progress past a certain thing quickly enough um for people to pay attention or do anything you know, I know there's like Nosbulls and other assholes like Eric Stryker or whatever his name is, Strider, I don't know, yep. um, who use this kind of shit to talk about creating ethnostates. They're missing the point so entirely. It's like, no, we need to create a society that was actually jointly created by the people who live within it. Like, yep. we don't need to ethnostate. We don't, that can't only be done in groups of racially hom homogenous, homogenous populations. We can actually just take all of our different, you know, mix up and let everybody have a voice and a place in the actual decision making of where we move forward. You know, I don't understand why that's such a fucking crazy line of thought. Yep. And it, it really is looked at as crazy. The amount of times, not by everybody, I'm not saying, but I mean, just the amount of times where I've just even suggested like super light versions of that. Um, the amount of people who tell me I just don't understand or I've never lived in a black enough area to understand that people can't mix. It's just like, what the fuck are y'all talking about? Like, Jesus. Fuck. And, you know, and even if that's true, it's like, OK, well, what do we need to change in our society to make it so right. that we can live together? And in every argument, I would say that those areas are more 
fucked economically than they are racially. Like, you put any group of people in abject poverty together in large numbers in shitty situations, and things aren't going to go well. Yep. Like, that's yep. not a, a racial yep. divide. That's a fucking economic divide of, yes, when people are put into positions where they have to struggle and life seems less important because fucking every day is a fucking nightmare, yep. people behave differently. Yep. Shock. Yep, sure. totally. Well, I'm really excited that we're doing the book. I'm super. I've been looking forward to it, and uh, I'm excited to jump into um, fucking chapter one next episode. Well, hell yeah, man! I'm just yeah. I'm excited. You yep. can't see me, but I'm smiling. Yeah, I'm excited too. Well, have a good day. <laughs>